Previously on the British Broadcasting Century. By December the 16th, 1922, the BBC is one month old, and finally four plucky people have been offered jobs there. They're the BBC's A-team. There's John General Manager Reith. He's like Mr. T. He ain't getting on the air, and he thinks everyone's a fool. Arthur, Director of Programmes Burroughs, he's Hannibal. He makes it all happen, really, and he loves it when a plan comes together. There's Major Anderson, the secretary. He's Murdoch, because he's letting the side down. Reith doesn't like him. And there's RH Chief Engineer White. He's face. Well, he's about to make an about-face. There's also Cecil Lewis, for whom they invent a job, Assistant Director of Programmes. So that's five staff members at head office. But wait, there is no head office. Better find an office quick. But first, this time, Arthur Burroughs, first voice of the BBC and their new Director of Programmes, needs to show John Reith the ropes. No one in Britain has seen broadcasting coming like Burroughs, and so our special guest this episode will help us delve into Burroughs' backstory at the Marconi Company. Professor Gabriel Belby will tell us all about how Arthur Burroughs was the lone voice convincing Marconis that broadcasting was a horse worth backing. What a team on the British Broadcasting Century. Four. Hello, hello, this is Paul Carenza calling... This is London College. Hello, hello, it's Paul Carenza here, uh, Season 2, Episode 4. You're welcome to it, especially welcome if you've joined us recently. Some of you uh, perhaps maybe via the Sitcom Geeks podcast. I know we've had a nice mention or two on there from James and Dave. If you love sitcoms like I do, then you want the Sitcom Geeks in your life. They are fab, especially for sitcom writers, but also for just delving behind the sitcom genre. Or you may have found us from the special I did from the History of England podcast. Delighted to have been asked to record a half-hour pre-history of the BBC episode for them. We'll post the full episode on this podcast in a few months' time as a special. If you are new to us, allow me to explain our voyage. Uh, Season one of this podcast covered up to the launch of the BBC taking our time. Then we had some longer form audio artifacts digging a a lot deeper. Some might say they are for the hardcore media history buffs only, but others might say they're for anyone with enough attention span, if you are the sort of person who likes getting lost in a library. And we had some parliamentary reconstructions as part of that. An email here from a listener, Alan Pemberton, who writes, I loved the special shows. What a luxury to be able to use as much airtime as you require. That's the joy of podcasting, Alan, isn't it? And how well you fill it. I particularly enjoyed your Hansard readings. For as long as I can remember, I've been avoiding politics and politicians on and off the air, but your little productions were enthralling. The language seemed more modern than I would have expected, or perhaps today's politicians are just old-fashioned. Maybe a bit of both. Anyway, it's the first time I've found politics interesting in a very long while. Thank you, Alan, for that. Yeah, I found it fascinating myself, even though I was making it, just delving into the archives and into Hansard and seeing how political debates were a hundred years ago, let alone all about broadcasting. So thanks to our parliamentary podcast players for helping us with those episodes. It was dense stuff, but really no denser than watching the BBC Parliament channel for an hour. This was just a debate in our patch. To this episode then, which maybe is also one for the media history students, but I will keep us muggles up to speed as well. After all, I've never studied media history either, so we're all learning together. We find ourselves this week in December the 17th to 20th, 1922. Just four days being spanned in this episode, really. But we're going to do a split-level story this time. So we're also going to flash back via our guest, Professor Gabriel Balby, who's written a fabulous thesis on how Arthur Burroughs took on the Marconi Company from within 
and arguably how this one man made broadcasting happen. So in our history of broadcasting then, what is the month-old BBC like in December 1922? Well, it's just had its first staff appointed, that was last episode, plus of course the provincial broadcasters who just keep on going, but they are working for now for the individual wireless companies like Western Electric, Metrovic and indeed the Marconi Company, who we'll hear a lot more about this episode. So the new staff at headquarters, even though there isn't a headquarters, currently consists of five people if they all accept their jobs and they won't technically start till after Christmas. Here's John Reith on something of his appointment. I, I don't know that I was surprised to find myself in employment with such potentialities, but at this board committee meeting in which I was chosen, one of the members said in a few months... The head of the BBC will know everybody worth knowing in the country. Well, Reith still hasn't accepted the job yet. He's got a week to do so, like the others. There's no office yet, so they need to get onto that right away, really, before they've had a chance to think about accepting the job. More immediately, boss John Reith hasn't got a clue what broadcasting is. And yet, he's just been given its top job. I thought that was the sort of job I was looking for because it had a secretary and a director of programmes. I didn't know what that meant. Well, it means that two days later, Mr Reith, that director of programmes will be telling you what the job is that you've just somehow got, despite knowing nothing at all about the business. In the days after Reith's appointment, he asks everyone what broadcasting is. And that weekend, he finds the perfect person to help him out. Arthur Burroughs. There was no precedent, no store of experience to be tapped, no staff ready to hand with metal proved in a similar field. It was all left to us. So now during that weekend after the interviews and appointments, Burroughs brings Reith up to speed on what this whole broadcasting malarkey is all about. Now if you've listened to the whole podcast, you will know that Burroughs has been a visionary of what broadcasting could be for nearly a decade at this point. I was with Marconi's wireless telegraph company when 2LO began. He was indeed, and for some years before. Now I'm only just starting to realise myself what a lone voice Arthur Burroughs was at Marconi's. One of those helping me to realise this is Professor Gabriel Balbi of USI in Switzerland. That's the Università della Svizzera Italiana, where he's Associate Professor of Media Studies. The Marconi Company was a company established in the late 19th century, and its business was mainly on what we call wireless telegraphy. And it's also a business especially important over long distances, communicating between the Atlantic, for example. The two sides of the Atlantic was one of the key goals and business of Marconi. Professor Galby has been visiting fellow at Harvard. He's studied media history and the history of telecommunications, written four books and a thesis that I found online all about the battle that our hero Arthur Burroughs had to convince his employers, the Marconi Company. There was a man, Arthur Burroughs, that worked for the Marconi Company starting from the beginning of the 1910s. And he had a kind of different vision, a different culture, we could also say, because he came from a newspaper culture then during the second, the first world war, sorry, he intercepted propaganda messages and he organized new services for ships uh, because we had to go back to the origins of the 20th century and people, for example, traveling uh, from, uh, I don't know, Europe to United States. They didn't know anything about what was going on in Europe or US until they reached the, the next harbor. 
So uh, this man organized a kind of service of news through wireless. Professor Balby has written a paper called Wireless's Critical Flaw. But what flaw? Why was it critical? Well, before broadcasting, wireless was all about communication, but it could be overheard by all. Your messages intercepted. Radio amateurs would listen in to radio experiments. And those listeners in formed the foundation of broadcasting, as we've heard in earlier episodes. So that one voice at the Marconi company saw an opportunity here. And he wrote to those in charge with the idea that this critical flaw could be an opportunity. So this man wrote uh, one memorandum and uh, also a paper to the Marconi company uh, telling the the management, uh, look, why don't we do something that today we could call radio? So a kind of service, uh, especially he had in mind a service for people living in in, um, in UK, in the countryside. So people that were unable to reach information in alternative ways, for example. The idea was to have information services uh, and these information services would also stimulate uh, the diffusion of wireless sets. So selling more radios uh, was one of the, of the business. So that's, that's basically the story. It's a story of a company. This company was quite reluctant to embrace the vision of Alto Burros because its main business was somewhere else in the point-to-point form of communication. But this, this man inside the company had a different vision. So that's a story of a company culture uh, that, as always, is not monolithic, but there are different visions inside the same company. So there are several different voices within any one company's culture then. Arthur Burroughs was certainly trying to amplify his voice. Nobody could tell to what extent broadcasting would catch on, nor indeed whether it would take on at all. So I asked Professor Gabriel Belby why he titled his paper Wireless's Critical Flaw. I quoted Marconi uh, when, uh, when I decided to have this title because Marconi himself in one of his biographies says that he was not able to identify the business of radio broadcasting and he considered basically radio broadcasting a flow of radio for the first 20 years at least. What is the flow here? Uh, according to Marconi, uh, the most, one of the most important characters of uh, wireless telegraphy had to be secrecy. And secrecy in point-to-point transmission is still today important. Uh, we don't want people listen to our uh, telephone calls, for example, or WhatsApp messages, etc. So the fact that uh, those telephone calls could be picked up by, by other people was a critical flow for, for Marconi. And we can perfectly understand if we understand this, the kind of business he had in mind. So uh, what we could call today the possibility of people to listen in for Marconi could be regarded as people picking up and listening uh, uh, other telephone calls. So that was a critical flow. Uh, Burroughs, or uh, Uncle Arthur, <laughs> as you mm-hmm. mentioned before, um, was first of all a manager able to see, the, to turn the problem into a possibility, we could say. And in this case, he decided to see this flow as an option, as uh, one of the wireless possibilities. And that's the title of one of the articles written by Burroughs itself. The title was Wireless Possibilities. There appears to be no serious reason politicians speaking, say, in Parliament should not be heard simultaneously by wireless in the reporting room of every newspaper office in the United Kingdom. 
The same idea might be extended to make possible the concert reproduction in all private residences of Albert Hall or Queen's Hall concerts, intervals in the musical programme filled with audible advertisements, pathetic or forcible appeals on behalf of somebody's soap or tomato ketchup. That actually must have been quite counter-cultural at the time, that actually there are wireless possibilities rather than just wireless problems. I imagine that those early people reading that, especially within the industry or those radio hams, the radio amateurs, there must have been a very a constantly changing relationship between the possibilities of wireless and, and the problems they were encountering at the time. Uh, that's quite typical of new media. Uh, when, a, when a medium is new, there are several open possibilities. There is a flexibility, science and technology studies says. And I think that that's important because uh, the same technology could be regarded by different people, different stakeholders, different groups in totally different ways. And from this uh, different tensions, uh, uh, a new technology can emerge. And this is the perfect case for wireless telegraphy that was born as a point-to-point -point medium and turned out, thanks to radio amateurs, thanks to people like Burroughs, into something completely different. Actually, something that was uh, the Dated for for a long time by the Marconi company itself. Of course, a company the size of Marconi's feels like an ocean liner when it comes to, to changing direction, I guess. And this one lone voice taken against those people saying, try this different thing. It's, it's In a way, it's a miracle that they did get something out of this, perhaps. That's the main reason why the Marconi company at the beginning rejected the memoranda of Altopoulos for, for different reasons. Uh, there are political reasons, as I write in the paper, and the Marconi company had a long-term and, let's say, difficult relationship with the post office. And at that time, uh, there was a much important business for, for the Marconi company, which is called the Imperial Wireless Chain. Oh, yes, the Imperial Wireless Chain was quite a huge task. It was undertaken by the Marconi company at the request of the post office, because, of course, the world was shrinking, thanks to Mr. Marconi. So now linking up the empire, you could get trade, news, industry, communications, all just putting countries together via Morse code, generally speaking, from across the globe. Now, this idea was mooted before the First World War. It took until April 1922 for that first link in the chain to finally come together. So that was just a week before London 200 began under Arthur Burroughs. That first link in the chain was from Leafield in Oxfordshire to Cairo. It would take another six years to connect up the final link, Australia to Canada. So this imperial wireless chain would really span the first years of the BBC. And by the time it was finished, the BBC would be a corporation. So this was a big job for the Marconi company. When Burroughs raised the question of broadcasting, they knew they had something massive to occupy them already. And they'd have to battle the government over broadcasting when they were working with the government fairly delicately on this imperial wireless chain. So I'm sorry, Arthur Burroughs, your broadcasting idea, which will earn us very little, can go right to the back of the queue. The memoranda of Burroughs was rejected because of different business models. And it's quite clear how in, in the answer of William Blake, which was the CEO of the Marconi company at that time, it's quite clear when, and I try to quote here, he answered, our policy, so I understand, is to remain in the business of news carrier only. So Burroughs was trying to propose something different. Broadcasting is sending messages to the, the greatest number of people possible. The business of Marconi Company was being what we could call today a news provider. So feeding with exclusive news, specific clients. So it was completely counter uh, the, the business. Exclusivity is important. 
So for the companies that subscribe to the service of Marconi Company, the fact that Marconi Company could sell for free information, this could be a, a huge problem and counter of, of the business. Having told his Marconi bosses what he thought should happen, Arthur Burroughs, the first voice of the BBC, was now telling his new boss on Sunday the 17th of December 1922, John Reith had to hear what broadcasting was. Years before, Burroughs had sent ignored memos to the Marconi bosses, and now to his new boss, it's a demonstration of a sort of chart showing what staff was required. That Sunday, Burroughs explains to Reith not just what broadcasting is, but what is best for it. And he seizes this chance to convince Reith that these resources are vital if broadcasting is going to work out at all. People are finally listening to Burroughs, and he's had a good year or two of demonstrating what radio can be. Remember, 2LO has been a demonstration station. He's been all over the country showing people what radio is. And now, arguably, Burroughs has his most important audience of all. As to broadcasting, I had a good many problems. The chief being having to explain what the initials BBC meant. The British Broadcasting Company. All right, all right. And via these diagrams of what the business could be, on that Sunday, Burroughs tells Reith what staff they will need, what departments... The two of them are currently half the workforce of the BBC, but Burroughs explains that they will need more, lots more. They'll need a musical director, which will be Stanton Jeffries, who's currently in charge of 2LO. They'll need a provincial programmes director, a supervising engineer, assistants, a publicity chief, an accountant, a lady assistant to help with women's programmes, six typists, five clerks, two messengers to liaise between offices and studios and between guests and broadcasters, two commissionaires to look after the building. It's made clear to Reith that broadcasting means early starts and late finishes, a premises in action almost around the clock, even back then when the hours of broadcasting were rather limited. And this would be seven days a week, plus a set of staff for each station. Now, Reith is, of course, baffled by this, but he has an open mind. They agree to meet up the next day to search for new premises. They'll be joined by Sir William Noble, that's the chairman of the board, the one that Reith is answerable to, and the man who interviewed them both just days before. So while Reith goes off to consider everything that Burroughs has told him, what does Burroughs do? Well, he runs off to broadcast, of course. Popular Wireless Magazine reports. On Sunday evening, December the 17th, 2LO gave one of the best concerts I have yet heard. One item in particular was simply first rate. I refer to the Chopin piano scherzo in B-flat minor. On a small loudspeaker, and using only two valves, the result was beyond all praise. There is no doubt that the radiophone has the gramophone beaten hollow as far as instrumental music goes. The sonority and clarity of the music was remarkable. This also from Popular Wireless Magazine. Mr Burroughs has commenced a new feature, which I hope will have some effect. During the course of each concert, he reads out the names of various districts from which complaints are being received about the misuse of reaction. That is, home users interfering with other people's signals. Peckham, Windsor, Forest Hill and Palmer's Green were on the blacklist the other night. I wonder what the delinquents felt when they heard Mr Burroughs' reproving voice. Provincial broadcasting notes, the Metrovic station at Trafford Park will shortly commence Sunday transmissions, and the station will soon be operating on its full power of 1,500 watts. The pages of popular wireless magazine a week or so later reported the appointments of Burroughs and Reith, although spelt one of the names wrong. I hear several important positions have been filled by the broadcasting company. A director of programmes has been appointed, Mr A. Burroughs, an assistant director, Captain Lewis, and a manager, Mr Keith. Odd to think of a world where Reith is not a name that British radio enthusiasts would know. 
And thanks as ever to Andrew Barker, our newspaper detective, for finding and sending us these. We are ever grateful. So Monday the 18th of December 1922, Reith and Burroughs reconvene, Reith now having a vague idea what this game is. And Burroughs has gathered some ideas of premises to visit, all within a small radius of the current transmitter at Marconi House on the Strand. This is central London, just south of Theatreland, just north of the Thames, just to the west of the law and the press of Fleet Street and Chancery Lane. It's a niche little patch, and it's somewhere they would forge the BBC's future. Since August that year, Sir William Noble, chair of the Broadcasting Committee, had an eye on office space. In fact, their accommodation needs had been scrawled on the back of an envelope by two other board directors, Basil Binion. From the very first, our chief executive saw broadcasting as a public service with far wider vistas and obligations than those of entertainment alone. All the directors were in agreement with this policy and we gave Mr Reith our full support. And Godfrey Isaacs, who was one of the Marconi bosses Burroughs had been trying to convince over those years. So premises meant a two-pronged thing. The immediate problem, well, they were temporarily housed by Magnet House, granted that space by General Electric, and they could not stay forever. So there was also a need for somewhere permanent. And that's what they planned to find over Monday the 18th of December and Tuesday the 19th. And it begins with an auspicious meeting. Reith, Burroughs, Lewis and White, four of the first five BBC staff, all finally meet. Only missing is Major Anderson, the secretary, but joining them is Sir William Noble, the one who hired them. Noble introduces Reith to his new staff. They meet and shake hands on the pavement at the bottom of Kingsway, opposite a premises being built at the time by one Irving T. Bush, later to become known as Bush House. Now, the BBC wouldn't move in there until 1940. For now, it was American companies. And under their occupancy, by the late 20s, Bush House would be called the most expensive building in the world. So that's not BBC property yet. For now, this motley crew, most of whom had never met, meander around the Oldwich area of central London, led by Burroughs, of course. Just a square mile or so of possible properties. It includes a gold flatting mill off St Martin's Lane in the heart of Theatreland, between Leicester Square and Charing Cross, right by what is now a gym box. Apparently, the gold flatting mill was a perfect shell of a building, because to get every last piece of gold, the entire place had been gutted on the inside. But they don't choose there. At some point during the day, Sir William Noble tells John Reith that his fee of £1,750 has been approved by the other directors. Godfrey Isaacs had a few reservations to begin with. So if Reith will do it for that fee, the job is his. Reith is still considering, though. He's still a little bewildered. Over a drink at the end of day one of searching, Burroughs tells Reith he's lucky enough to have a voice that seems to carry well. Reith still isn't quite sure how that's relevant to broadcasting. It's really over Christmas in Glasgow when Reith speaks to his old school friend, Jack Loudon, that he finally discovers what this business is. Jack Loudon is now an accountant, but in his spare time he's a wireless amateur and he tells Reith everything that Burroughs had left out. Before day two of their search for premises, of course, is another evening broadcast. But flashback two years to 1920, and broadcasting may have had a different purpose. According to Professor Gabriel Balby. The Chelmsford concerts then that I think, you know, Arthur Burroughs was seemed to be part of, but other people had these ideas, Captain Round and William Ditcham and having those early concerts and Dame Nellie Melba, you know, when it went, went bigger. But you're suggesting that they were still to encourage, as far as the Marconi Company are concerned, still to encourage point-to-point messaging rather than saying, hey world, here's radio, here's broadcasting. 
This is contextable, and also the reviewers of the paper at the end of the day, at the beginning, were not convinced that I was able to convince them. <laughs> I don't know these people because it's peer review. Uh, but anyway, I think that if we go back into the Marconi archives, as I did, and they are uh, in Oxford, very well preserved, um, I found there different documents, including flyers of the Marconi company itself promoting the chance for concert, for example, as a, a way to experiment wireless telephony. Uh, for example, uh, I remember in a promotional brochure printed by the Marconi company itself, it was written that uh, those experiments are wireless telephones by nature, and they had to be considered like ordinary conversation, which is interesting, because we tend to think that those were concerts, one too many concerts, that's one too many, as in from one person to many people. Not one too many, as in one concert too much. Just to be clear. People could pick up or listen in or intercept them. We can use different, different words here according to, uh, to your, your field, let's say. Uh, and it's also interesting how in another flyer was clearly written that those concerts, and I quote, uh, were done to show that no special skill was required to talk into the telephone. So according to me, it's more a promotion of the possibilities of wireless telephony as a new medium, a medium that aimed to expand wireless telegraphy using words and natural voice instead of dot and dashes than an early form of broadcasting. Here's a memo that Arthur Burroughs sent in May 1921. At this point, he was the Marconi publicity officer and he was amid a shutdown of British radio after the too successful Melba broadcast. Burroughs wrote, I believe that it would be possible to build up a popular and profitable business in the radiation of news by wireless telephone at one or perhaps two hours of the day. My idea is that by arrangement with the news agencies, whereby they receive a share of the revenue and thereby made sympathetic to the proposal, a useful outlet might be provided for the crystal receivers, which I assume are being replaced by valve gear on ships at sea. I believe that a wireless telephone transmitter, such as that which we have used at Chelmsford on many occasions, could be heard over the greater part of England on these crystal sets without any alteration in them. They would require no skilled operators and would be free from the troubles associated with high-tension batteries and delicate gear. I would not suggest the sale of apparatus, but a hiring charge which would include the maintenance of the gear and the new services offered by us. As we know, the Marconi company weren't convinced about this financing plan for broadcasting. They've joined forces with the other five big wireless companies, and we now have our British Broadcasting Company. But for another few months, the Marconi House studio will house the broadcasters, and Magnet House, loaned to the BBC by General Electric, will suffice as their office. But once they've outstayed their welcome with the electric companies, where does the BBC go then? Well, day two of their search, Reith, Burroughs, Lewis and White continue their hunt for headquarters. No William Noble on this day, just the four of them. And by the end of the day, there'll be just three of them. Yes, 20% of the BBC workforce gone in a day. Now, Tuesday 19th of December is a long day. Burroughs, of course, made earlier notes of the potential premises and had this to say of the final property that they visited, the IEE, the Institution of Electrical Engineers, behind the Savoy Hotel on a small road called Savoy Hill. Barrow's notes. There is vacant a large room, 44 foot by 27 foot, which by rearrangement would make an excellent concert room and the necessary retiring room for artistes. There is on the third floor and adjacent to it on the same floor, three rooms, 20 foot by 12 foot, one room, 12 foot by 12 foot, and one anteroom, 12 foot by 7 foot. 
On the second floor, below these smaller rooms, is another set of rooms of similar floor space. The combined rental, including rates for the ten rooms and top-lid room for studio use, would be £850 per annum. Hmm. Sounds just the ticket. Well, Reith did not think much of this Savoy Hill space to begin with. But then he didn't think much of anything to begin with. Reith's notes on Tuesday the 19th of December, 1922. We went to inspect sundry possible sites for the launching of our enterprise. Finally, as dusk was falling, we came to Savoy Hill. It seemed the worst of all. First, we had to locate and interview the caretaker of the Institute of Electrical Engineers, an undertaking of some magnitude at any time. Yes, the institution has large premises, vacant in their block, with separate entries and so on. Being instructed by him to present ourselves at another door, the game, so to speak, began. The building was on Savoy Place, Savoy Hill, Savoy Street. Having circumambulated the block, we composed ourselves before one gloomy portal to attend till such time as, by devious underground channels, the caretaker might reasonably be expected to arrive at the same entrance, but on the other side of it. This, in due course, he in fact did. But it was apparently not the intended rendezvous, for no entrance was obtained. It is difficult to receive geographical direction from behind a solid door, and in this case it was quite unsatisfactory. There were many other doors. Finally, however, the two parties succeeded in arriving simultaneously at opposite sides of the same openable door, and we were admitted. What a depressing place it was. It had been used for some mysterious London County Council medical activities, vacated some months earlier, and much dirt and depression had accumulated since then. It was difficult to see any convenient arrangement for offices, but if ever the windows at the end of one vast chamber could be made transparent, a fine river panorama would be obtainable. And that would be his office. The Institution of Electrical Engineers on Savoy Hill, this is where many of those earlier negotiations that summer had taken place, where Sir William Noble helped six wireless companies work together to form one BBC. See episodes 11 and 12 of this podcast for details of that. The president of the IEE was Frank Gill, who came up with the name BBC. So here, the fledgling BBC would make their first permanent home, after they were no longer attracted to, but repelled from, Magnet House. Now that's a metaphor. But one of their own staff was already repelled from the BBC too. But during the second day of touring premises, having assessed the motley crew of apparent pioneers, Chief Engineer-in-Waiting R.H. White took John Reith to one side. R.H. White had been 2LO's engineer for most of the year. He knew broadcasting. He understood it. He'd interviewed for and been appointed charge of its engineering. First Chief Engineership of the BBC could have been his. But no. White says to Reith... I'm unhappy about this concern, and after giving the matter a lot of consideration, I've decided not to accept the appointment. Why? asks Reith. Well, the more I look into the proposition, the more I'm convinced that the whole thing is too doubtful. I'm in a good position, and I can't afford to take on anything that is insecure and precarious. So I'm going to climb out while I'm safe. Bailing from broadcasting right at the start, R.H. White returns to his safe job at the Marconi Company, never to be heard of in the history books again. Until he starts a lemonade business. Sorry, that's a different R. White. Although like a secret lemonade drinker, R. H. White is a bit of a secret as that near chief engineer. Because many history books actually keep his name private for discretionary reasons. To not embarrass him, or indeed the chief engineer to follow. Because yes, that post of chief engineer is reopened. We'll find out who gets that very, very soon. But White's departure gives Reith a few doubts as well. Reith later says... I wondered at the time whether this, the chief engineer's decision, implied any reflection on his future colleagues. 
If he'd lost a quarter of his staff before they'd found an office, how precarious was this invisible business? Should Reith himself step back and return to politics? Well, he was a secretary in politics, but a boss of broadcasting. So we know which Reith chose. As for R.H. White, Reith pondered a decade later. I wonder whether he has ever subsequently regretted his caution. How many wireless enthusiasts know that a certain voice might, for this chance, have remained yodelling in Rittle? Yes, Reith refers to Peter Eckersley, waiting in the wings and broadcasting his wild anti-BBC shows on a Tuesday, but set to become the first chief engineer. In um, February the 3rd, 1923, I was chief engineer of the BBC, obviously the chief, because the only engineer. <laughs> Clearly, even at this point, when broadcasting's experimental phase has finished, the government has approved it, the BBC has begun, Reith has been appointed and three different stations are up and running with five more on the way, even then broadcasting had no certain future. I asked Professor Gabriel Balby when he thought the Marconi company finally realised that broadcasting was here to stay. That this company that Marconi's had a sixth of a stake in, let's not forget, might have had a future. It's the most difficult thing to establish, according to me. And at the end of the paper, I try to, in a way, give some hints and clues. I'm not sure that even when the BBC was founded, Marconi, the management of Marconi company was entirely convinced about this. And there are documents of the late 1922 uh, in which it's clearly written uh, in Burroughs again saying that we are not uh, reach an agreement yet of the involvement of Marconi Company to the BBC. So I'm not completely convinced that Marconi Company was convinced about entering the BBC uh, since the beginning. Of course, then uh, it exploited the business uh, later and Marconi himself recognise it. Marconi himself, quoted by his biographer Luigi Solari, quoted by Professor Gabriel Balbi in his paper Wireless Critical Floor, quoted by me. For many years I've strived to limit the reception of messages at the station to where they were addressed. I did not realise that I was holding a priceless fortune, broadcasting. The possibility to receive one transmission simultaneously in many places was considered a critical flaw in radio for many years. This is also an interesting story. Uh, let me say that uh, companies' cultures are always plural, uh, but there is always a kind of mainstream in the company culture. In this case, the mainstream was Mr. Marconi himself and the majority of the, of the CEOs and the relevant people inside the company, while Burroughs was the minority, but at the, at the same time was able to impose its, its meaning to... I use the word ferry, the Marconi uh, company, into the BBC. So that's also a story of a company culture, which is absolutely contemporary, because we could look at the same way, I don't know, inside a Facebook company, Apple company, or other big tech giants. We look at Facebook, Apple, and so on, and Google now, not quite knowing what their plans are for the future, nor what will work out. They're trying a bunch of different things and seeing what takes it. You can only look back, in a way, as we are now. And, uh, and plot the history of things to work out the mindset of the time. It's because we have documents. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so we can see uh, internal documents of the Marconi at the beginning of the 20th century without, uh, I mean, problems. Those are not sensitive documents anymore. It'll take another 100 years before we can do the same for Google. I don't know. I believe that a business of every sort, or almost every sort, depends on one man for its success. Reith is talking about himself, but I think... To begin with, that one man was Arthur Burroughs.
Well, Reith was convinced. The day after they visited Savoy Hill, Wednesday the 20th of December 22, Reith wrote to Noble, formally accepting the general managership of the BBC. He noted, The general manager will have the full control of the company and its staff, and will be responsible to the directors. He had met his employees, and yes, he would control them. I have had considerable talks with Mr Burrows and Mr Lewis, and have also had a meeting with Mr Rowell, the secretary of the Institution of Electrical Engineers. There need not be any time lost when I'm away for Christmas in the matter of new offices. But in his diary, Reith admitted, Completely mystified as to what it was all about. There is a great work to do. I had tremendously efficient, imaginative, dedicated assistants in the BBC. And the first was Burroughs. There was something big, even colossal, conveyed in the nature of the contract we had undertaken. My thanks to Professor Gabriel Balby for his time and insight. His paper is Wireless Critical Floor, The Marconi Company, Corporation Mentalities and the Broadcasting Option. And he's writing more on this era. We will let you know when we know more. Or you can find him on Twitter. And you can find us on Twitter at BB Century or on Facebook. And we've even got a few videos on YouTube on my Paul Carenza channel. The links to all of those are in the show notes. You can support us on Patreon, and thank you if you do, especially to new patron Brandon S. Thank you, and hello to you, Brandon. I've anonymised your surname. I never know if that's the right thing to do or not, but we thank you for it. In return, I upload special things on Patreon. For example, I've just started reading bits of Cecil Lewis's book, Broadcasting From Within. That's the first ever book on broadcasting, really. Because as of this year, Lewis's book is delightfully out of copyright. So you can hear me read a bit of that on there. Join us on patreon.com slash paulcarenza for just a month if you like or longer. It all keeps us in books and web hosting. Next time, enough on HQ. What about the broadcasters themselves? We see how John Reith's chart actually gets filled in with some employee names, including a pop star, Rex Palmer, and up in Manchester, Victor Smythe. And we discover some problems happening in late December 22 with experimental licenses. Yes, this BBC, it turns out, won't pay for itself after all. Do share this podcast if you like it, it all helps us out. And stay tuned to The British Broadcasting Century is presented and produced by me, Paul Carenza. It has nothing to do with the BBC, or anyone else for that matter. It's a one-man band here, apart from the original music, which is composed by Will Farmer. Archive clips are public domain, being over 50 years old, or private domain, but we're not sure who's private. Who are? Some of the memos read out of BBC copyright content reproduced courtesy of the British Broadcasting Corporation. All rights reserved. Ah yes, reserved. How very British. Stay informed, educated and entertained and join us next time as the staff goes up and up on the British Broadcasting Century. <laughs>